Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger's A New Song for the Lord begins with its treatment of the liturgy, begins its treatment of the liturgy with a recollection of the Diocletian persecution of Christianity. Diocletian published his Edict Against the Christians in 303 AD, where he ordered the destruction of scriptures, places of worship, and banned Christians from assembling for worship across the empire. The following year, Roman soldiers entrapped a group of 50 Christians during a priest, the priest Saturninus, Saturninus's celebration of the Mass at the home of Octavius Felix. According to ancient transcripts of the interrogation, the proconsul questioned St. Saturninus. In collecting all these men together, you have acted against the command of the emperor and Caesar. Influenced by the Holy Spirit, the priest responded, We have celebrated the day of the Lord without anxiety. The proconsul said, Why? He answered, Because what is the Lord's cannot be interrupted. That's the first quote on your handout. Saturninus's surprising his answer is surprising and ironic. Who could be less secure than one under the interrogation of the imperial consul, consul during religious persecution? Acting against the orders of emperor and Caesar, Saturninus had the security of his own conviction. So the Diocletian interrogator turned to the house's owner to inquire why he allowed the forbidden worship to take place in his home and informed Octavius that he should have forbidden them entry. Octavius Felix replied, I was not able, for without the day of the Lord we cannot exist. Again, the response is puzzling. While one might consider the fulfillment of his Sunday obligation as absolute, can we believe that without its completion, we lose our being? Can the words of the martyr be accurate? To understand the words of Saturninus and his empress, Octavius Felix, emeritus, Octavius Felix, uh, it seems appropriate to consider the nature of the Lord's day. The Lord's day, however, should be understood through its progenitor and next of kin, the Shabbat, the Sabbath. For in both testaments, we are called to refrain from labor in honor of the Creator one day of the week. God prescribes the activity of the Sabbath in the old and the new. So uh, what I'm going to do, this is the order of my talk, so I'm going to establish that uh, creation is for man and creation is for Sabbath and therefore creation is for man's participation in the Sabbath. And then I'm going to argue that Sabbath is for freedom and for leisure. And accordingly, Sabbath is for liturgy. So creation is for Sabbath. Sabbath is for liturgy. Creation is for liturgy. So that's the basic structure of my argument. And uh, Mr. Cunningham pointed out that I should say what I mean by liturgy. So what I mean by liturgy is what... Um, Pius XII means by it in his encyclical on the Liturgy Mediato Dei, which is the solemn and public worship of the people of God or the church. So it has to be part of the formal worship of the church. It's also the definition of liturgy that the catechism gets. Okay. Uh, so, Sabbath in the Torah. One must understand the Sabbath through its place in the first creation narrative. 
Thomas Aquinas lays out a general framework for interpreting the first six days of creation, claiming the parts of the world were created, distinguished, filled, and adorned. So here's that big quote. Three things are recorded as created, namely the heaven, the water, and the earth. And these three receive their form from the three days' work of distinction, so that the heaven was formed on the first day, on the second day the waters were separated, on the third day the earth was divided into sea and dry land, so also it is the work of adornment. On the first day of this work, which is the fourth of creation, are produced the lights to adorn the heaven by their movements. On the second day, which is the fifth, birds and fishes are called into being to make beautiful the intermediate element, for they move in air and water, which are here taken as one, while on the third day, which is the sixth, animals are brought forth to move upon the earth and adorn it. According to Thomas Aquinas, God forms three realms in the first three days, and in the second set of three days, God fills and adorns these realms. In a similar interpretation, it is argued that God creates three realms in the first set of three days, and in the second set of three days, God fills these realms with rulers. In this reading, we might see the completion of creation arising from the various realms with creatures that might participate in God's rule. So in the chart I have for you, in the handout, you see they'll have the first set of three days on the left, and then on the right, it gives the, quote, uh, rulers that rule those three realms that God creates. Uh, one might question the details of this interpretation. Scripture does not say that birds and fish rule the sky and sea. Nonetheless, the sacred page says the heavenly bodies rule the day and the night. Still, the celestial bodies are ordered to something else, man. God sets them to be, quote, for signs and seasons, Genesis 1.14. Man, anthropos, is a featherless biped. He walks upright. His gaze is not fixed towards the earth like a beast. He can he can direct his gaze upward to the celestial bodies above. The stars are signs for men insofar, they, insofar as they bring to his awareness natures beyond their own. The stars are also for the times and seasons of men, secular and sacred. Man is more an image of God's rule as well. While other aspects of creation participate in God's authority, none participates so significantly in ruling as man. Again, man participates in God's creation by recognizing creatures' natures and giving each a name. Man speaks as God speaks after a fashion. Man's word does not bring a thing into existence, but man's naming does recognize a creature's nature and identity, whereby it is divided from other things. Man divides as God divides. Moreover, the application of a name expresses a kind of authority or stewardship. Man names by his words as God creates by his word. Thus, man who is created on the sixth day is most properly said to be created in God's image. Well, I could say a lot more about this, but uh, that, that's good, I think. For our purposes, we can safely conclude that the first creation account 
has an ordered direction ending with man, the chief subject of Genesis' second creation account. We might say that man is the most excellent instance of imaging God. If creation allows God to share his goodness through creation's participation in him, then creation seems to be most properly for man the microcosm of the material universe. God's creation ends on the sixth day, while at the end of the first day, God saw that creation was good, and he saw it again after the second and third. At the end of the sixth day, God saw it was exceedingly good. Creation is said to be very good. Creation, it seems, is completed by what is made on the sixth day, man. And yet, the sixth day is not the last, does not end here. So there's the the next quote from Genesis. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work, which he had done, and rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all his work, which he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Scripture gives the reader another day, which implies a different perfection of creation. Uh, As B.E. Schaefer explains, in ancient Mesopotamia, the number seven, quote, functioned as a literary and cultic symbol for the fullness of time and the events of the seventh day were often climactic. The number seven was used as a literary device to emphasize the completion or perfection of a thing. On the seventh day, God rests, quote, from all his work. Scripture's repetition of the phrase, from all his work, reiterates the distinction of rest from work and emphasizes that God's rest is apart from his work. On the culminating day, the crown of, crea- of, the cr- of the creation narrative, excuse me, the narrative leaves creation without a part. So there's a little puzzle here because it seems like on the seventh day that's the culmination of creation, but then when you read the account of the seventh day, what's, emph- what's emphasized is that God is a res- uh, resting apart from the work that he's just done. So it seems like there's no uh, purpose with creation. Uh, Creation creation doesn't have a a way to participate in that seventh day. Strikingly, the Genesis account does not portray man imitating God in his rest. Okay, so uh, that's on kind of your first reading of, of, of Genesis. You don't see that. So Mr. Cross pointed out to me that later I disagree with that, and that's true. So uh, that as you first read Genesis, you don't you don't see any. Uh, you don't see that man is allowed to, or any part of creation is really allowed to participate in God's rest. That's, that's, what, that's what strikes you when you read. Um, even in Eden, God puts man to work. God plants the Garden of Eden. He instructs man to participate in the gardening of God. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Genesis leaves the reader in a state of tension. While man is called the image of God, Genesis does not claim that man imitates God's intrinsic activity, the activity that God does in himself apart from all his work. As we know, God commands man to participate in the Sabbath later in the Torah, 
We next hear about the day of the Lord's rest in the context of Israel's collection and consumption of manna from heaven in Exodus 16. So I don't have this quote in the sheet as it was kind of big. This is what the Lord has commanded. Today is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay it by to be kept till morning. So they laid it by till the morning as Moses bade them, and it did not become foul and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out together. Sorry, some of the people went out to gather, and they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain every man of you in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Israel, like God, is to rest on the Sabbath. God's firstborn son, Israel, is required to participate in the Father's rest. Note that Israel receives this commandment before Moses receives the Decalogue in Exodus 20. The Sabbath precept of the Decalogue is stated more than any other in the Torah, ten times. So we have a way to solve our puzzle. Creation can culminate in man's most excellent participation in the divine and culminate in God's Sabbath rest if man's participation in God's Sabbath rest is the purpose of creation. Scripture seems to suggest that we further our understanding of the Sabbath through its contrast to the notion of work. In its primary meaning, we work when we work on something, the car, the house. The notion of work is directed to something exterior. Likewise, God, uh, sorry, excuse me. Likewise, Genesis represents God's work as towards something outward. God's working is his creating. In fact, the Septuagint uses the word ergon, which can mean, like the English word work, the product itself, as in a work of art. Accordingly, God's work, like our work, is directed to what is outside himself, creation. Of course, there are differences between our work and God's. God creates his work out of nothing. Our work presupposes something outside ourselves. God's work cannot constitute some movement in God. Since he lacks nothing and contains no potency, he does not labor. Moreover, God, in whom lies all perfection, cannot be said to have any need. There is no necessity to God's work. In contrast, Human work is typically caught up with exigency and the needs of material existence. So, um, in fact, if we start, if we if we do what we would normally call work, kind of just for fun, we don't call it work anymore. We call it a hobby. So some people garden as a hobby, but once it's no longer a need, you don't call it work. Clearly, Exodus 16 illustrates that God desires us to refer to refrain from providing for our material needs on the Sabbath. Man is in many ways a slave, as Aristotle says. 
His material needs are so significant that they might allow himself to be wholly consumed by them. God desires us on the Sabbath to engage in an activity not tied to the material needs, an occasion for us to remember that our Creator made us for something more. Accordingly, Sabbath demands freedom from work, the demands of our bodily existence. Scripture seems to verify this connection between the Sabbath and man's freedom. Okay, so freedom from the bondage to his physical needs. So that's the, the second. So we're arguing that um, Sabbath is for freedom, then we'll argue Sabbath is for liturgy, then we'll argue Sabbath. I mean, so Sabbath is for freedom, then we'll argue Sabbath is for leisure, then Sabbath is for liturgy. God not only states that on the seventh day thou shalt do no work, he clarifies the kind of work. You shall do no servile work on that day. Leviticus 23.7 Human participation in the Sabbath seems to involve activity proper to the free man. Two other events of scripture suggest this interpretation. First, only after God has freed Israel from their bondage to the Egyptians does he institute the Israelite observance of the Sabbath. The freedom of Israel is directed to the Sabbath. God promulgates the Sabbath precept in light of Israel's salvation from Egypt. Quote, And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Israel's freedom from slavery is for Sabbath. The second scriptural verification, the connection between Sabbath and freedom, is the command to observe the Jubilee year, the holiest year on the Israelite calendar, a Sabbath of Sabbath. So uh, the Israelites in the Torah every, um, for, after every 49 years, so seven times seven, uh, they had to have, they had to free all the slaves. Basically, anyone who was a slave, uh, any Israelite with, who was a slave became a free person. So you, there was kind of a limit on how long you could be a slave, and um, everyone, everyone, everything was reset every 49 years. Uh, so, uh, anyways, the importance of the Jubilee year, the Super Sabbath, cannot be overstated in the life of Israel. Indeed, the Book of Chronicles shows that the exile occurred because Israel ignored the regulations of the Jubilee year. In sum, the Sabbath is for free activity. We imitate God's rest by our activity free from work on the sensible exterior world. Hence, we can understand man's participation in the Sabbath as his time devoted to authentically free activity. If creation is ordered to man's participation in the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is ordered to free activity, then it is appropriate for us to consider the nature of freedom. Uh, so my wife said, well, I thought you said that um, freedom, I thought you said that um, freedom was for Sabbath, not Sabbath for freedom. But So the freedom from, from uh, Egypt is for the Sabbath, but that means that the Sabbath is for some kind of activity that would be free. So there's a way in which they're both for each other. But So the Sabbath is for free activity. Okay. So it has become fashionable to view freedom as independence from arbitrary constraints on one's identity. 
the constraint of convention and tradition, the bonds of created nation, sorry, created nature. Salvation from such bonds in an act of self-determination constitutes the authentically free act. The concept of freedom and happiness, this concept of freedom and happiness, rejects the givenness of tradition, the givenness of convention, the givenness of nature, the givenness of creation. There is a desire to remake all such realities in our self-determined and freely chosen image. Happiness, according to this opinion, is a form of self-discovery. It's a kind of wisdom. Um, Self-discovery is the salvific act constitutive of happiness. Self-expression is its celebration or liturgy. Can the fashionable view of freedom be accurate? Clearly, a lack of constraint and self-direction relate to freedom. Consider the contrast between the free man and his counterpart, the slave. A slave is properly a man who lives for the sake of another. Another rules him. As Aristotle informs us, he is, quote, a living possession. The free man, on the contrary, is his own. He lives for himself. He directs himself. Socrates, in the Gorgias, offers an alternative view of freedom. Whenever a man makes a choice, he aims after some good. A man takes medicine for the good of health. The merchant fares the sea for the good of wealth. Now it is proper to the free action that the action is chosen and not forced. A free man does what he wants in a sense. However, if this man is mistaken about what is truly good, then he does not do what he fully wants. For example, a tyrant cannot be satisfied because he does not choose what is genuinely good, and as a result, he is not truly free. He is like a leaky jar that can never stay full. In contrast, a truly free man always chooses what is conducive to happiness rather than simply what his desires in the myopic moment uh, give him. The free man desires happiness above all else. Thus, when he does what is conducive to happiness, he does what he wants. Unlike a slave, a free man realizes his good within himself and lives according to that good. Such a man lives with a noble purpose. Returning to the fashionable notion of freedom, we can safely conclude that scripture cannot equate freedom with mere self-direction and lack of constraint. Such a conception is, in truth, an anti-freedom which rejects the understanding of the cosmos as created. As created, we are determined by our creator. Our creator has given us a determinate nature. Our nature determines what is conducive to our happiness. Accordingly, our creator has determined what activity constitutes genuine freedom by determining human nature. To properly understand free activity, perhaps it would be beneficial to consider the same content from another angle. So now we're going to talk about leisure. Scripture suggests we come to know the Sabbath rest through understanding it as an alternative to work. We cannot understand God's rest as a mere negation of creative activity. 
Clearly, God must have some activity proper to himself. The consideration of rest from work elicits a consideration of other kinds of activity besides work, play and leisure. Aristotle lays out the different kinds of activity in a clear order. He says, quote, Work may be said to be in between rest or play and leisure, and happiness is thought to depend on leisure, for we are busy that we, might, that we may have leisure. Leisure is the end or purpose of our work, but amusement is not. Leisure is better than work, he says, and, it's, and is its end, and therefore the question must be asked, what ought we do when at leisure? Clearly, we ought not to be amusing ourselves, for then amusement would be the end of life. End quote. Play and relaxation are medicinal and restore us to good order such that we may engage excellently in other activity. Work provides for our physical needs. However, it is not chosen for itself, but for what it allows other than itself. Leisure is chosen for itself. Clearly, Sabbath rest cannot be considered as play, as if it lacks gravity. Although playful activity is free and often delightful, it is not serious enough to be a candidate for the purpose of creation. So Aristotle says, and here's one of the quotes on your sheet, Now to exert oneself and work for the sake of play seems silly and utterly childish. But to amuse oneself in order that one may exert oneself, be busy, as Anacharsis puts it, seems right. For play is a sort of relaxation, and we need relaxation because we cannot work continuously. Relaxation, then, is not an end, for it is taken for the sake of activity. If the seventh day, which God blesses, another you could translate that praises or makes happy, uh, is superior to the first six days, then the activity that constitutes our participation in the Sabbath must be superior to the activity proper to other days of the week. Just as it is unfitting to call the activity of God mere amusement, we are not called to mere amusement in our participation in the Sabbath. Sabbath must be for an activity that is for its own sake. It must be leisure. It is not just any kind of leisure, but the best kind of leisure. Although Aristotle notes the nomads had time for leisure, the nomads did not live life well. Aristotle notes that the Spartans came to ruin because they did not know how to be at leisure. He says, nature itself, itself strives not only to be busy in the right way, but also to be capable of, capable of leisure in a beautiful way, to leisure well. Beautiful leisure would, of course, be what is most noble and what is most choice-worthy. As Aristotle says, one should, be able to go, one should be able to work and go to war, but one should rather remain at peace and be at leisure. And one should act with a view to what is necessary and useful, but thereafter with a view to what is noble. When God calls us to participate in his rest, he is calling us to act in a way that is in, in accord with what is most noble. Here we begin to see the connection between Sabbath and freedom. In the ancient world, 
Slavery was a common institution among peoples. Israel was no exception. Leisure in the ancient world was set aside for the free man. Sabbath, in one sense, is a measure of time, a day of the week. In our reading, we can understand the Sabbath precept as prescribing an allotment of time for leisure for all Israelites, slave or free. So all, all Israel gets to participate on the Sabbath in noble activity, even if you're a slave. Creation culminates in the Sabbath. Man, the pinnacle of creation, is called to participate in God's Sabbath. Uh, so let me just say something about that. So um, in the City of God, when St. Augustine talks about uh, slavery, and he says, that, well, it wasn't from the beginning, the, the institution of slavery wasn't there, but it's a result of sin somehow. Um, what he insists on is that the, is, is primarily is, is on the slave's right to worship, that the slave owner has to. This is the, really the main thing he, he's saying is that the, the slave owner has to give, allow the uh, slaves access to worship of God. Um, the Sabbath rest is connected to freedom, and freedom is ordered to that activity which is most choice-worthy and most noble. The Sabbath prescription of rest from work implies God's desire that we spend rest in leisure. What that means remains unclear without a description of some activity. That said, we have seen that such an activity would be authentically free, most choice-worthy, beautiful, and noble. In a word, it is the goal of life, the activity that could constitute human happiness. Moreover, such an activity is the goal of creation itself, Aristotle says that leisure is the beginning of everything, pawn. Socrates implies that the question, how man ought live his life, is of the greatest importance. Fundamental to determining how we are to live is determining the most elevated form of leisure, determining the purpose of the Sabbath. Tucked away in a religious text, of an ob obscure Near Eastern people, the Israelites, is the answer to the greatest questions of the greatest philosophers, the answer to the meaning of life and cosmos. So, uh, Sabbath as for liturgy. What does scripture imply about the activity of Sabbath? Exodus says of the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. God separates, note the connection to creation there, Israel from all other nations to be a holy people to the Lord. God desires Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God separates Israel from the common and the profane and makes Israel sacred and holy. Before God sanctified Israel, Israel, excuse me, he sanctified a portion of time separate from other times. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, Genesis 2.3. He sets the day apart for the holy use of his holy people. Sabbath time is holy time. Accordingly, man should tend to divine things, as is signified by the words, Remember thou, keep holy the Sabbath day. God refers to the Sabbath as his day. A thing is sacred, St. Thomas says, 
if it is ordered to divine worship. He also says, It is right that the seventh day should have been sanctified, since the special sanctification of every creature consists in resting in God. For this reason, things dedicated to God are to be said to be sanctified. Unquote. The Sabbath is a day of rest consecrated to Yahweh. That's the Bible. That's from Exodus. Uh, man abstains from other works on the Sabbath day in order that he may occupy himself with works ordered to God's service. So, opus Dei. That's, that's the works, works of God. In the book of Acts, we repeatedly hear that the apostles, Jews, and converts are in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Mark 2 well, this is just these are from uh, the New Testament. So, Mark two, Luke four thirty one, Luke thirteen ten, Acts thirteen fourteen twenty seven, forty two through forty four, fifteen twenty one, sixteen thirteen, seventeen two, eighteen four, and so on. It's just on the Sabbath they're in the synagogue. Um, under the old covenant, the Israel the Israelites made sacrifices daily at tabernacle and temple. The worship was continual. But the Torah prescribes special religious observances for the Sabbath. So even though worship is ongoing, Sabbath is obviously a special day for worship. So then I have a list of, I have those, those A, B, C, D in your handout, of different things that are proper to the Sabbath that was prescribed. Um, so uh, I'll just skip those. But it's safe to say that the Sabbath is set aside for God in the form of liturgical worship. So if you're interested in those, you can look at those passages from the Old Testament. Um, creation exists to provide a place for liturgy. The people of Israel exist to provide those who will worship. The Sabbath exists to provide time for liturgy. Accordingly, Thomas says, the precept of Sabbath observance is moral in one respect, insofar as it commands man to give some things give some time to the things of God. He then goes on to quote Psalm 45, Be still and know that I am God. Again, he says, The observance of the Sabbath concerns the worship of God, ad cultum Dei. Three other aspects of Scripture suggest this reading. First, God's instruction to Moses free, uh, to Moses that freedom from slavery in Egypt had the stated purpose in Israel's worship of God. Quote, then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Moses describes this service as, quote, A feast to the Lord. God is quite explicit regarding this point. Freedom cannot be aimless. It is for service to the divine. The promised land as Aristotle would say, is one of the goods simply, so or sometimes translated as an absolute good. It doesn't become, it's not necessarily good for you. If you're a bad person, it's not good to have a ton of wealth, for example, um, or a ton of power. Right? But in itself, it's a good. So the land in itself is a good, but it, uh, if you don't use it well, then it's actually bad for you to have the land. God says, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, 
What do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. The land becomes good for Israel only as a place for worship. Pope Benedict says, the land is not a neutral receptacle, but is given to God's holy people as a place for sacred liturgy. Second, the construction of the tent of meeting and the construction of Solomon's temple give confirmation. The medieval commentator Ibn Ezra observed the coming of God's presence into the tabernacle constituted the completion of the creation of the world. The constructions are imbued with the Sabbath with Sabbath symbolism. The narration of the tabernacle construction contains a seven-fold repetition of the approbatory formula Moses did as the Lord commanded Moses. Mirroring the sevenfold approbatory formula of Genesis 1, and God saw that it was good. The temple was built in seven years. Solomon consecrated the temple on the seventh month with a seven day liturgy in which he offered seven petitions. The temple and the tabernacle, moreover, are depicted as new gardens, that is, a new paradise in God's presence. The tabernacle is a place of God's localized presence on earth. The garden is the garden was not just a temple, it was the temple par excellence. So I, I guess I have to make a caveat to that because uh, Christ's body is probably um, more the temple par excellence, but prior to the incarnation. Uh, scripture uses the same word, mitalek to describe God's walking in the garden that God uses to describe his movement in the tabernacle. The entrance of the garden and the entrance of the tabernacle and temple both faced east. Thus, as one entered the temple, his movement was in the direction of paradise. Cherubim were stationed east of the garden to guard it. Cherubim stood at the top of the tabernacle as well, making the throne of God in the inner sanctuary. Further, two cherubim guarded the inner sanctuary of the temple. The temple even had its own tree of life, the seven-branched uh, candelabra. So, um, so Mr. Cross pointed out to me that um, Eden, uh, Ezekiel also calls Eden the mountain of God. So the, um, the holy places in the Old, Ten uh, the Old Testament are mountains. So Mount, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. Mount Tabor, uh, so but Eden, Ezekiel calls Eden a mountain of God, and the, and the rivers flow out, flow down out of Eden. So it, it kind of reminds you of the uh, the living waters flowing from the side of the temple in Ezekiel. Um, it's a holy place. Thus, the construction of the tent of meeting and the temple use paradise as their model, because liturgy is the purpose of creation. Considering the garden as the paradigmatic temple leads us to our third verification. As is commonly noted, Adam is a type of Christ, it's a figure of Christ, as prophet, king, and priest. Before Aaron, all firstborn males were priests. After God removes the priestly, priestly status of all men and limits it to the tribe of Aaron, the duties of Aaron regarding the tabernacle mirrors the duties of Adam in relation to the garden. That's what we read earlier, to keep until. 
In Numbers 18, the priests of Aaron are ordered to keep shamar and serve, and sorry, serve or work abad in the tent, using the language of Genesis. So it's the same. They're the same words. God commands Adam to keep and serve the garden. God excludes Aaron from entering his presence in his nakedness, as Adam was separated from God in his nakedness. God commands and specifies the clothing of, clothing of Aaron, as God makes the clothing of Adam. If Adam was a priest, and Eden a temple, it is without question that there must have been some form of worship intended. If there is a priest and a temple, there must be liturgy. Augustine, commenting on the worship in the garden, says, Pure and untouched by any taint or stain of sin, Adam and Eve offered themselves to God as purest sacrifices. Accordingly, God created the first paradise worship as for worship. Perhaps we can now begin to understand the comment at the beginning of Saturninus. The liturgy is the exp expression of a most free act, an act chosen for its for itself despite its wor worldly implica implications. While, while Sunday obligation may seem like an imposed law external to our inward desire, it is according to our nature as rational created beings. The early Christians considered the liturgical act worthy in itself, irrespective of its consequences. To them, it is without question that one cannot renounce the, quote, foundation of life for mere survival and ex exterior peace. There was no consideration of a casuistry that would allow the loss of their Sunday obligation to maintain their status as good citizens. To enter the temple and engage in its worship is to return to paradise. As St. Benedict says in his rule, nothing is to be preferred to the work of God. Opus Dei. Let us conclude by drawing a few corollaries. As is clear from Plato's Euthyphro, the wisdom naturally available to man reveals his duty to, quote, tend to the gods. The virtue of religion is a natural virtue. However, Thomas makes clear that it is beyond our natural lights whether our worship should consist in this or that determinate act. So that we should worship God is clear to us, but how we should worship God, that's beyond us. Um, or maybe not, it might not be clear to us that we should worship God, but it's, no, it's noble to us naturally. It's part of the natural. Um, he teaches that such a determination is subject to divine law. The natural law requires the specification of a lawgiver law to become practical. Then God blessed the seventh day. God intends the Sabbath to be a blessing. So, um, so you might say that um, by giving uh, the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, he's he's allowing man to he's 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 revealing something necessary for man to live according to the natural law. He's unable to live according to the natural law. He knows he's supposed to worship God, but he doesn't have a way of determining how we should worship God. And so by giving him the Torah and the ceremonial precepts, he's making clear to him how he's able to fulfill the natural law. And without, so that's why it's a gift. Um, it allows, allows man to act virtuously. 
By culminating the creation with the account of the Sabbath, the Bible shows that the Creator and Redeemer are one and the same. Pope Benedict says, The fundamental question of man, of the man who begins to un understand himself correctly, is, how must I encounter God? Thus, learning the right way of worshiping is the gift par excellence, par excellence that is given to us by the faith. Unquote. So, so when I was talking to Mr. Cunningham about this, I kind of um, squeezed out of him that he had written this um, article on uh, what it, what's on the natural inclination of man to offer sacrifice. So I had to quote him. So this is this is a quote from Mr. Cunningham: um, "Man's mode of honoring God is through sensible signs." For St. Thomas, it's part of the natural law that man honor, honor God through exterior signs, to sacrifice to God. So that's from Mr. Cunningham. Um, but it's, it's also from St. Thomas. Uh, that said, our worship was... <laughs> so, so the point is, is that, um, the point is, is that uh, our worship, it's, it, it's natural to us to worship with exterior uh, visible signs. That, and it's part of the natural law that we do that. So it's, we're required to, to worship with exterior visible signs. That said, our worship must also be interior. Scripture re emphasizes that God's re God rests apart from his work. The activity of God's rest is interior. Accordingly, our participation in God's rest is also interior, caught up with the highest powers of knowing and loving. Pius XII teaches the chief element of divine worship must be interior. We must always live in Christ and give ourselves to him completely, so that in him, with him, and through him, the Heavenly Father may be duly glorified. Merely exterior fulfillment of the so-called ceremonial precepts lacks merit unless they are grounded in virtue and grace. I guess it is grounded in virtue and grace. New moons and the Sabbaths and other festivals I will not abide. Your wicked assemblies cease to do perversely, learn to do well. That's from Isaiah. Accordingly, we can claim liturgy is the summit towards which the activity of our polis, the Civitas Dei, is directed. Liturgy is the microcosm of virtuous activity. Aristotle explicitly connects sacrifice as an activity proper to leisure in the ethics. He says, quote, the virtues useful with a view to leisure and pastime are both those of which the activity is in leisure and those of which it is in work. In a fallen world, leisure presupposes work. So the point is, is that um, in order to have good leisure, you also need to have good work. So you need to have, for a city to be virtuous and leisure, it also has to be virtuous and work. So it, it presupposes all the virtues. Um, in a fallen world, leisure presupposes work. Work relies on justice, temperance, courage, and endurance, he says, to produce and protect necessary goods. Aristotle holds that the magnificent man spends principally regarding public welfare and divine worship. Noble leisure requires moderation, justice, of which piety is a potential part, you can never do enough of it, and wisdom. Christ points out to the Samaritan woman at the well, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. 
God is to be worshipped, St. Augustine says, by faith, hope, and charity. The liturgy of true worshipers involves the activity of the theological virtues. When we worship God according to the way in which he is revealed, we believe God. We have faith in God. When we petition God in prayer, we hope in God. When we honor God with prayer and devotion, we do so through our love of God. Liturgy crowns all the virtues contained in the city, and the crowning activity of the city's leisure allows for the universal participation of man, male and female, young and old, slave and free, rich and poor. Joseph Pieper, regardless of any deficiencies, makes explicit what is often an egregious oversight. Democritus observed that life without festival is a long road without an inn. Pieper saw that festival must be grounded in liturgy. He says, the celebration of divine worship, then, is the deepest of springs by which leisure is fed and continues to be vital, though it must be remembered that leisure embraces everything which, without being merely useful, is an essential part of human existence. Any public affirmation of creation, any authentic celebration of the natural world, must take place in the context of man's authentically free activity. The world is for liturgy, man is for liturgy. Genuine festivity is grounded in joy. St. Thomas says, the direct and principal effect of devotion, which is an interior act of worship, is spiritual joy of the mind. So, worship is what produces spiritual joy. That's the direct and principal effect of it. Without worship, festival degrades into a bare spectacle and decadent carnival. So I'll close with the quote at the end from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, if you turn your foot from breaking the Sabbath, so if you turn your foot from breaking the Sabbath, from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, if you honor it by not going on your own way or seeking your own pleasure or speaking idle words, then you will delight yourself in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the land and feed you with the heritage of your father Jacob. Thank you.